Welcome to Vase, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. Hine, and joining me as always is my old friend and co-host. He's fresh out of surgery, having a Neuralink chip implanted into his remarkable brain for the sole purpose of letting Elon Musk know exactly what he thinks of him 24 hours a day without interruption. Now that's dedication to the cause. And as an added bonus, he'll be able to record the entirety of tonight's episode without moving his beautiful lips. It's <laughs> Mr. Stephen James Buckley. <laughs> <laughs> that was my attempt at speaking without moving my lips, but it was a that was only a visual. That was only a visual visually guy. funny. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes a piece of art comes along which I get totally obsessed by to the point where I can't really think about anything else. I totally fixate on it and I talk about it to anyone who'll listen. This happened about 10 years ago when the first season of True Detective came out. Uh, I watched it three times in a row. Yeah. So, uh, a bit less said about the uh, the new season, the better. But anyway, um, <laughs> our guest this evening is someone that I've wanted to interview since last year when I became enchanted to the point of obsession with one of his creations. This particular piece of unconventional transmedia storytelling was called Ong's Hat. I had no idea what to expect or what it even was. I just heard it mentioned a couple of times and saw that the audiobook was about three hours long, which happened to be the length of the walk I was about to take. So I put it on and I was immediately enthralled by this immersive story told via the medium of mysterious brochures and posts on early internet message boards about a group of quantum scientists and esoteric mystics who combined their respective disciplines and found a way to open a hole in the fabric of the universe and travel to parallel dimensions. But Ong's hat was not simply a clever work of fiction presented in an unconventional manner. It was, in fact, the first example of what is known as an alternate reality game, in which participants knowingly immerse themselves in an interactive narrative which uses the real world as a platform. Like a lot of things that exist on the fringes of art, ARGs eventually got sucked up by the mainstream and were used as little more than a quirky marketing tool. And a very convincing argument could be made that the whole QAnon movement, along with January the 6th Capital Attack and Pizzagate, were using similar techniques, the gamification of politics by the sinister forces which operate behind the curtain. There is another way to look at this, of course, as a sort of magical ritual designed to bring about changes in both the participants' brains, but also the world at large. There is a lot more to ARGs than meets the eye, and we're hoping to investigate this with our guest tonight. He describes himself as part poet, part scientist, and part madman, and has described his latest work, a trilogy called The Liminal Cycle, as an experiment in self-possession to invite a conversation with the void. So, without further ado, let's find out what The Void has to say in our conversation with Mr. Joseph Matheny. Hello, Joseph. Hi, Hello. Joseph. Hey. Nice How was that good. intro? That was pretty good, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was good. That. Like, I, <laughs> I'm not normally the writer. Normally, Heinz the writer, but he let me have a go tonight. So, <laughs> You ever, you ever thought about good. being PR person? <laughs> yeah, possibly, possibly. <laughs> uh, so thanks very much for joining us. We're really, really pleased to have you here tonight. Uh, there's so much that we wanted to talk to you about. Um, and so we're going to try to get into it pretty much straight away. Um, I mean, because you, your career um, and the art that you've been putting out has spanned decades and decades now. Um, I mean, going back, um, I mean, so Ong's Hat came, was it the very end of the 80s, early yep, 90s? Yep, end of the 80s. Um, and uh, you, you've been working in tech before that, hadn't you? Um, that's about the time I started working in tech. Right, okay. Um, I kind of made the... Um, the segue. I, I I started dabbling in tech as a as a uh, hobbyist, um, and back back in the late eighties, that that was something that you could do. Um, we we all built our own computers and 
I used to go to the Berkeley uh, uh, Mac user group, the B Mug, and and people like Steve Wozniak was there, and wow. so like this was this was the beginning. This was before the uh, the internet was really publicly accessible. It was still the ARPANET probably back then, but yeah. um, th- that was where you could dial up into something called a bulletin board system, and then you could talk to people from all over the place. And I, I tell people this; they they sometimes don't believe me, but in eighteen nineteen in eighteen yeah nineteen eighty nine. Um, you could send an email and it would get from my desktop to my friend's desktop in the Netherlands in three days. And we thought that was amazing <laughs> because it beat, it even beat like, like uh, airmail, you know, it was like, I yeah. can send you a, a letter and you'll get it in three days. <laughs> we thought, because back then what happened is uh, long distance was still a thing. There, there were no cell phones. Everybody had, you know, like landlines. And so you would set up a computer, which I had one, and you would have a bulletin board system. And at night, when the rates were lower, the, the bulletin board <laughs> yeah. system would automatically dial up the closest one at the, at the uh, like the next, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, what they call those things? Um, the, the next region over. And, uh, and it would, it would upload all the mail on its server. And it would pick up any mail from that it had from that server and then download it. And then that would happen. And it would just hopscotch across the world. It's like computer dialing, wow. computer dialing, computer at night. And that's how this email went. And so it was almost like Pony Express, you know? It's like <laughs> yeah. you gave somebody a letter, they put it in their bag, they jumped on the horse, they rode to the horse, died, they, they handed it off to the next guy. <laughs> and this that's how email was. So um, back then I was playing playing in tech, but I didn't – really get my first paying job in tech until 93. Right, okay. Because there wasn't any jobs. <laughs> so what made you kind of look at that at that clunky system that was yeah. the pre-internet almost and start thinking, got the gears in your head working of the project like Ong's Hat? Um, 19, I think it was 88, 89, somewhere around there. I'm, I'm like just kind of thinking like what would have been the, the vague year. I don't know exactly, but it was like in the era of 88, 89. Um, I had subscribed to this magazine in Berkeley. I was still living in Chicago. I was about to move to California, but I was still living in Chicago where I grew up. And um, I found this magazine in the back of something like, you know, like some weird zines thing that I found like a letter and sent $2 to get this magazine and it was called high frontiers and it was out of Berkeley. Um, and so they were talking about the well and this new thing called the bulletin board system on the well. And so I happened to have a computer. And so I tracked down a, a modem, which was like unheard of, but it was, and this thing was huge. It was like this <laughs> big metal thing, like the half the size of a briefcase and it did like I think three hundred baud or something ridiculously low, <clears throat> but that was like the top of the line back then. And and I installed it and I dialed into the well on this number, and I went oh, and I just had an epiphany. I'm like oh my god, this is the future of the medium. This is it. This is where books are going. This is where movies will end up going. This is, I just had this moment yeah. where I'm like mm-hmm. everything's going to be this in the future. And so I just set about learning it as much as I could and and found, you know, like self-taught hacking around at night, like trying to dial into other computers, 
doing war dialers, finding computers, like just randomly dialing numbers until I heard one answer and then see if it was a computer or if it was a modem or, if it was, you know, like, and just do that, like sit up all night and just do that, drinking Joe Cola and eating Chinese food out of a carton. <laughs> and, um, and then I moved to California and um, got, a, got closer to, cause I was in Santa Cruz. And so I got really close to the um, Apple c- community, which is, was um, over the hill, but, a lot of people that worked at Apple lived in Santa Cruz as a bedroom community and a lot of hippies, you know, that had turned techies that were like going to UC Santa Cruz. So there are mathematicians who would turn techie. And so I, I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And, and they were, they were like echoing what I was saying. I'm like, this is the future of the of media. And they said, yes, yes, yes. And, you know, I'd never had anybody say yes before them. And now I had everybody saying yes. So I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to look into this. I'm going to do this and, and learn how this works and uh, pursue this as a career. And for a long time, it was just something I did. I was really good at, and I did for free. And then probably maybe 91, somewhere around there. Um, I, I remember um, everybody suddenly had to have email. Like businesses, people, mm-hmm. everybody suddenly had to have email. And my phone started ringing off the wall because these businesses would call people and say, we need somebody that knows email. And everybody would say, oh, there's this guy I know in Santa Cruz and he knows email really well. And so I just started getting all these calls and then I became a professional. That's, wow. that's how it happened. Yeah. It's all I'm- because I wanted to write an expanded book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, wanted that- to write a book that would reach out and touch people. And and that's what's so interesting is the way that it did kind of reach out and touch people because, and I think we'll sort of talk about this a bit later in the way that the fiction and the reality of what you created is almost a magical working in that yeah. it alters. No, it was a magical working. Yeah. It was intentional as such. Exactly. So what I was wondering was how did you first get into, so we've heard about the tech side. How did you first get into that side of the weird stuff, the, the occult or the esoteric stuff going back? Oh, I've always been into that. I've always Since been you were a kid, yeah. 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 So um, I, I have a friend who's writing a book for MIT um, that probably, I'm guessing will come out next year, but she's, she's writing about the, um, the unknown history of the beginnings of the internet and the tech culture. And, and she keyed in on something. And of course she called me and interviewed me for it, but um, it's that back then in the late eighties, all of us tech people in the early nineties, all of us tech people, long hair. In fact, we were nicknamed pony, the ponytails, like, uh, like an executive would say, get me a ponytail. And he meant, <laughs> get me a tech guy. <laughs> That's what we were called, the ponytails, because we all had ponytails. <laughs> we were all into uh, either ritual magic, which I was into very much, or we were they were into uh, D&D type stuff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there was crossover. People were into both of yeah. those. I was never into the tabletop gaming stuff, but I had a lot of friends that were. Um, I was into ritual magic and theater. That My whole thing was that. Um, and so I saw the connection between ritual magic and what I wanted to do as a, as a project called the living book and theater. And so I wanted to incorporate all, all the things I was interested in, which was a lot of things. And I wanted to tie them up into one project. Mm -hmm. And so that's really how it happens. It's like, can I create, you know, the, uh, the the Swiss army knife (laughs) of an art project? Like it, it has all the aspects of everything, a little bit of everything. So that's what I was after. That's what I was trying to do. And and I just called it back then I called it the Living Book Project. 
because it was, it's, you know, it's a narrative, it's a story, but it's not a book like there is. So I tell how I had, I had this, I was reading and studying a lot of stuff about the, 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 the future of the book. Umberto Echo wrote a really good piece on that, a book on that, or co-authored right. a book on that. And so I was like steeped in this like idea of what, what, what will a book be in 10 years? Yeah. And, and one night, one night, um, I was, I was hanging out with my friend, Nick Herbert, who the quantum physicist, Nick Herbert, and we were tripping on acid and I was showing him how to dial into a BBS. And I jokingly called it uh, DUI and the Infobon. Um, but <laughs> I was like explaining to him like how this worked and how databases worked. And in doing that, I had to explain it to him in a way that I would understand what he would understand. And, and then I explained it to myself in a way I'd never explained it before. And I said, think of this. What is a book? A book in this world is a unit of measure. It's this, this thing that I put an encapsulation around of all these words. And I said, okay, this, this set of words over here, it's a subset. I'm calling that a book. Out of all the words it could be, it's these words. And that, you, and that subset is called the book uh, in a database. That's what I would call it, right? And that book is now flexible and it can grow and shrink in real time. Like I can yeah. be adding data. I can be, and I can be extracting data out of it in real time. I can even skew the data so that I can make a different book out of the data set. And, and that's like, I, the light kind of went off in my head and I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's not just, you're not just high, but you are, but, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah, true. But it's a, it is that sort of, that sort of almost connectivity that comes from, uh, you know, comes from psychedelic experimentation is yeah. you can see how that kind of factored into both kind of the the sort of thinking that that created the internet, but also the sort of thinking that you know your vision for 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 Ong's hat and the living book. It's that same kind of almost mycelium esque kind of connection. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So something it's interesting you mentioned the theatre thing because um, yeah, I've often felt sort of the more I've looked at magic you know whether it be ritual magic or or, or, or you know various types of, of of magic and magical practice there almost is an element of theater to it it's almost like i can see a definite relationship between magic and say like larping and yeah yeah like D and yeah. um like do, do you feel like magic is almost a form of theater or theater is a form of magic yes yeah Good. Yes, that's, that's, it yeah. goes both. It goes both ways. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. like so, th- th- there's definitely a crossover, isn't there? It ha- there has to be because in order to make it, 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 well, first of all, there's a lot of definitions of magic. So I'll just give you what my working definition at the moment is, which is you do certain things to put yourself in a st- certain state of mind, which allows you to accept and receive information that you might not have received otherwise. Yeah. You can have conversations that you couldn't have otherwise, right? So um, how you want to define that is up to you. Like, is, is, is am I talking to an entity that's, you know, that has subjective uh, reality identity or, or, or objective? Like, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Mm. It's like <clears throat> there's, there's certain types of information out there that you can access in certain states of mind that you get to that state of mind through theater. I mean, magic is theater. 
It's derangement you, of the senses, isn't it? It's derangement of the senses. It's 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 set and setting. It's all yeah. of those things. Like the, the the incense plays a role. The colors play a role. The sounds play a role. The chanting plays a role. The the wardrobe that you have on, the room that you're in, and how it's set up. All of that plays a role. That's theater, right? Yeah. And it's D and D as well. To, to well, yeah, degree, yeah. Isn't it? It's the D and D is a subset of theater for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What kind but of it, magic uh, were you practicing? Was, was it? I was pla- uh, No, I was practicing Golden Dawn. Oh, okay. Yeah. And yeah, then so I got the- way into D. And um, once you get into D, you can go a couple of ways. But then I, I went kind of the purest way, and I got involved with um, a group of people that were working um, on the history of D, and also in the history of Enochian, and whether or not the stuff that the Golden Dawn was using was. Uh, perverted maybe like stepped on a little bit to use a drug yeah. term um, <laughs> yeah. and so I, I started going to the source the desource and I got way and uh, there's a there's a terminology that people use that are into into the um, history and it's called Enochian flu <laughs> you get you get you get obsessed like you can't yeah. get out of it man yeah. I know people that went so far as they started to arrange their house according to the watchtowers really yeah, and I'd come over and they'd be like, I'd be like, oh, you changed things around. Yeah, I had to put that chair over there because that's really element of fire. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and I didn't get that bad, but I got almost that bad. <clears throat> and the kind of results you were getting from the uh, Enochian magic. Um, I got some with- very interesting results. So, yeah. um, well, here's the thing. Again, it's theater. And, and as you pointed out, it's the arrangement of the senses. So if you do a true set of rituals and you do them true to true to form you could be you could be in that room for 12 hours chanting and walking in circles and burning things and um and so you are altering your senses when you do that yeah um and you become you're becoming deranged but you were doing it willingly you're doing it for a reason you're doing it to get into a state of mind that you can have this conversation and then, of course, um, one or two times, I I felt I felt like something was in the room, mm. and the people that were with me um, saw it too. Like I wow. would check in with people. I'd be like, "Do you see that?" And I wouldn't say what. I would just look down. It's like, "Do you see that?" They're like, "You mean that thing that's floating above the the crystal?" Yep, that. <laughs> <laughs> you see it too. Okay, and yeah. and so we would check in. And the scryer that we had um, was an artist who was not into ritual magic at all. She just like, she, she stared into the crystal and I, you know, I had, I had the obsidian mirror, the whole thing set up and, and she would go into trance pretty, pretty easily. And then she would start telling me what was being said and that I would see things floating above her. And like, you know, and of course we were all in a state because we had been at this for 12 hours, but that was the point. Yeah. You know, so I don't write it off because of that. I go, well, we we intended that. This you can't talk to these things unless you get there. Like you got to get there. So we would get there, and then we'd have these conversations, and you know, it was pretty interesting. Like some of the things I asked, um, I'd be like, well, you know, I don't really think that you're the angels as they're described by Ezekiel, or you know, I don't think this any of this is biblical. We're not talking about Yahweh here, you know. Mm. And, and they agreed. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, we, no, no, that, that's not a deity we recognize at all. It's like, well, what are you like? 
And then they would give me some Ramtha answer, you know. It's like, I am that in all things. I'm like, oh, come on. things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is is that sort of breakdown between subjectivity and objectivity, which I think is the place where magic is the most effective. Yeah. Because I, I suppose what I've been wondering is how much, when we're talking about things like UFO encounters rather than the lights in the sky, I'm talking about actual experiences that people have of either abduction or contact yeah. with beings. And then going back, to, you know, obviously when you've got the things like Jacques Vallée to the fairy law and then you look at the magical rituals and and the commonalities between them and what a lot of these encounters have is that they're kind of highly subjective um, and they're often experienced by only one person or only one or two people whereas Mm -hmm. when you have the lights in the sky you see you often get tens of people who see them or even more sometimes you know and, and you get that a lot but i'm wondering what the connection between the human mind and the, and the human consciousness is and these forces. Because when I think about it, and I've done a bit of magic, I've not got into the whole Enochian thing and that sort of thing, but when I'm having these sorts of experiences, I definitely don't feel like it's something internal or something that I would willingly create myself. Um, and yet when I listen to these descriptions of other people's experiences and take into account my own, I, I see it inextricably linked to the observer. Um, in a way. And I, I start to wonder, like, w- would there be magic without humans? You know, how much does human consciousness create this, these entities, these beings, and how much do they live outside of us? Do you have any ideas on, on I, that? I think it's a 50-50. Okay, right, so okay. are you familiar with the concept of a demon in um, networking? Only, only very superficially. Okay, so you know what a web server is? Yeah. Okay, so the... the technical name for a web server is an httpd which is hypertext transfer protocol daemon right. and what a daemon is that lives on a unix server or it could live on a windows server these days and whatever linux but you know it, a daemon that lives on a unix server is something that sits fallow until it's invoked notice all this terminology where does it come from <laughs> yeah. until it's i was i was having this discussion with the MIT person the other day, and they were not aware of this. And I said, a lot of this language that got wrapped around what now is could called networking was was set up by people like me and, and other people that were into either D&D or ritual magic or both. And so the terminology is like demons and invocations and all these things, right? Yeah. Um, which makes sense. But it also, it describes perfectly the process. So when I send a string to a, to a web server... I say, you know, uh, something like HTTPD, you know, get, put. I, I, I give it these instructions, and then it wakes up, and it does what I ask it to do, and it goes back to sleep, and it sits there, and, and it just sits there dormant until it's invoked again, hmm. which is the way in magic, if you if you study magic for a long time, you understand that a demon, that's, that's a perfect description of a demon. Yeah. Um, a, a demon is something that, 
wakes when it's invoked and does what it's told to do exactly. And then it, <laughs> and then it goes dormant again, right? So, and, and you, that's why you have to be very careful with your language with the demon. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you have to say, you know, I want this specific thing. Um, because if you're not, if you're not, um, precise with it, it, it will give you uh, a bad output. And the same thing with a, with an HDBD. If I'm not precise with it, I will get bad outputs. So these things parallel a lot. So having said that, my conception of these things like the valet idea, which I, I'm, I'm, you know, I've always, since I read Passport to Magonia a long time ago, like I've been entranced with that idea. Yeah. Um, I've never seen a UFO. I've always wanted to, but I've never seen one. And that's probably why, because I want to. Um, <clears throat> but I've had some liminal experiences. And I've come to the conclusion that these these entities or these intelligences that we can talk to sit dormant because they, they, they're not fully in reality until we complete the circuit. Mm. So humans ah, – yeah. Come along and make some do something do, to get yourself in the right state of mind. Like you walk three days in the woods and you're exhausted. You sit three days and I, I do these things called vigils. I'm really big into Martin Shaw. If you know who Martin Shaw is, um, well, I don't think so, if no. not, you should read Martin Shaw. The uh, great introduction to him is a book he wrote called Wolf's Milk. So Martin Shaw is a mythologist in um, Devon, England. Um, and he takes people out into the woods or he himself goes into the woods, sits for four days with, with no, fo- no food, just water, no, no shelter, just a, like a tarp to keep the rain off of you if it happens. And you take you know water and enough things to keep warm, but not, not a sleeping bag or like you, just, you, know, you make it very, very simple. And you sit in the woods and you just shut the fuck up and listen. Because the woods will talk to you if you'll shut up long enough and let it let it talk. Yeah. Right? And let the land speak to you. And so I do that quite often. And so uh, I've had a lot of time to think of these things and, and kind of like almost with a little bit of science and a little bit of poetry because you need both. Um, I started to think about like what is this thing and these things that are talking to me and what, what you know, why do they exist? Are they external, internal? And the answer is Yes. It's the same thing with the, when I was talking to the Enochian spirits. It's like, you know, are you objective or subjective? Yes. The answer I got was yes. And, 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 and that makes sense, like, because you have to have both. Yeah. You have to suspend. You need to know if it's subjective or objective and just take it for what it is. Meet it halfway. And when you meet it halfway, the third thing arises, just like Burroughs and, and Geisen. Yeah, talking about cut-ups, the third thing, yeah. the yeah, third yeah. mind. When that happens, that's what's talking. It's the third mind. It's not you. It's not it. It's another thing together that you are a part of. Like it, you know, it's holographic. You are a part of it. It doesn't exist without you, or it doesn't exist until it doesn't exist until you. Like you have to complete the circuit. Yeah, that reminds me of, of playing music, you know, the, the idea of the third thing as well. You, you, you yeah. talked about it in terms of writing, but you can also have it in music yeah. if two people are jamming um, and suddenly it clicks. And yep. then you've got something that's more than just those two people. There's this third thing that's there. Yeah, and you yeah. do that face to each other where you're like... <laughs> yeah. you, you, get, you, get yeah. in, you get into that zone 
yeah. As you know, like, and so you can do that with your computer when you're writing. Like, you can do that with a lot of things. So if you get into that zone, it's no longer you. Mm. You somehow have bypassed the ego of yourself, yeah. and you're into this other thing. And it's not just you. It's not just whatever the other thing is. It's both of you creating a third thing. And so I think that's what happens when you got these weird experiences. And that's I think that's why they're wonderfully so nonlinear because like you get the, you get these weird experiences. Like my, my best experiences are, are so weird and funny and so odd that if I told somebody, they would think I was making it up. It, it would sound like I'm just like, you know, like yeah. taking the piss as they say over yeah. there. In the yeah. UK. yeah. That's what we say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so like, the, but that's what it feels like. I don't even, sometimes I don't tell people because it's just like, it's too yeah. ridiculous and it was not meant for anybody but me anyway. No, that's I mean, that's one of the things that we've talked a little bit about on the podcast before is that the more straightforward and narrative based someone's experiences, the less I kind of believe it. Whereas the yeah. stranger it is and the less sensical it is, the more I'm inclined to believe it because why yeah. would they be telling you that? Why would they be making up something like that? Yeah, the things um, that the stranger UFO encounters, like the the one I always uh, think of, is the one with the um, with the, that guy who got the cookies or the, the, pancakes. the pancakes. Pancakes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and I think that one's in Passport <laughs> to Magonia, I think. Or, or um, yeah, it's in uh, a lot and, of books. I, yeah, it's a yeah, cosmic, yeah. cosmic trigger, yeah. and yeah, and and yeah. then and then when it's analysed, it's just a pancake. There's nothing yeah. supernatural yeah. about it at all. But why would he make up a whole story around that? There's well, it was no a reason. buckwheat pancakes in. And at the time, like through the fifties, like that, yeah. that wasn't a common thing, but yeah, it was, but yeah. it was just a pancake. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm not the whole constructed narrative around it with the ship, with the smokeless oven and the, and the small guys in it, you know, the yeah. whole thing is, it sounds completely crazy, but that makes you just think, well, there's probably something in that. Well, see, um, when I read uh, George Hansen's uh, The Trickster in the Paranormal, yeah. Yeah, um, I, right. I was a little, at first I was a little hesitant. I was like, somebody told me, you should read this book because he talks about liminal experience a lot, liminal places. And, and I'm like, uh. and I started reading it and there was some UFO stuff in there. And I was like, uh. but then all of a sudden I read this one, this one section that he wrote. And then I was in, he sold me because it was, it was, um, it matched with my experience. And he said, you can't just talk about liminality. You have to sneak up on it sideways. And I'm like, yeah. absolutely, because as soon as you start talking about it directly and logically as a thing, it stops being the thing that you were trying to describe. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be just in like the just like you were vision. saying, like yeah, if they it, exactly peripheral vision. If, they, if people start telling me like a linear story and they know all the facts, like if they're yeah. nuts and bolts, I'm like, you didn't have an experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I was wondering, in terms of, um, you've talked about the uh, various synchronicities that happen to both 
yourself and others who were involved in Ong's Hat. Do you have a personal explanation for synchronicities or is it what's your personal sort of synchronicity theory? And do you think it's the same in terms of, you know, between objective and subjective uh, in the same way that we're talking about magic, etc.? What What are your thoughts on those? Well, synchronicity is only significant to you. It might yeah. not be significant to me. Right. So what makes it so powerful is this personal. Yeah. So I was just thinking the other day of this song and the song came on the radio that only relates and re- applies to one person, me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, and possibly it could, you could see it happening if you, a group of people were listening and the song came on the radio and then something happened that it was the title of the song. It could happen to groups too. I've seen that happen. But to me, I try not to question it too much because synchronicity to me, when, especially as an artist, when I'm creating and I don't get a bunch of synchronicities and I know I'm probably not on the right track. And then when I get into like a series of synchronicities that are very high level and come very fast and, you know, in, in series that I'm like, bam, I'm on it. I'm on it. Like, and I just follow that track. Um, now Ong's hat and also liminal trilogy, um, I've been reported to me because I, I wrote when I wrote both of these, uh, created both of those. Um, I had a lot of synchronicities in around the creation of them. And then people started telling me like, when I read this, I get these like series of synchronicities and some people are disturbed by that. And other people like me are delighted by that. Some people are not quite into that. They like, they feel like it's an invasion or, or maybe they find it to be scary and, and you know, I guess I understand that. I've never been that way, but, you know, I get it. I've, I've seen enough people become disconcerted by it that, uh, okay, I, I accept that there are people like that. Um, but I'm led to create things that seem to encourage synchronicity in other people when they experience the art. I don't know why or how. So people have asked me, like, what's the secret? How do you do that? I don't, there's no secret sauce, man. I don't know. It's like, I'm just, I'm just led to do it that way. And when I do it that way, it creates seemingly creates synchronicities for groups of people. Like many people have contacted me about liminal, uh, the cycle, liminal cycle. And like told me, I got all these synchronicities when I was reading this trilogy, like one after another is driving me crazy. Like, well, how did you do that? And, And I like, I didn't do that. I don't know how I did that because Really, I was just like following my bliss and following my unconscious as much as much as like really what I tried to do, I tried to get my conscious mind out of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. what what I'm doing, I think, again, this is just me guessing, but I'm guessing that like the, the imagery that I'm pulling up is coming from a deep, maybe collective unconscious or near collective unconscious level. And so that makes it trigger the same kind of things that other people because we're talking about like very deep imagery that applies to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, there's some of the stuff in Ong's hat, like the, um, even sort of the descriptions of the, of the various worlds and the, uh, the, the, like, you know, the alternate universe version of Java. And there was a description of a, a place where there was, there was sort of, uh, like an, a, an abandoned city almost with like yeah. sort of canals running through it. Yeah. And, and yeah. that, 
that I, I can still remember exactly where I was when I listened to the audiobook <laughs> of that and where I, and I wasn't anywhere particularly excited. I was just like walking around and like, I still remember. And, and every time I walk past that place or cycle past that place, I'm straight back in that place that was described in Ong's hat. It's just like, it was such a powerful image. And for, for whatever reason, I just, I finished that, that audiobook and I was just like, I, I don't want to read anything else or listen to, I, I just want more Ong's hat. I want to know, I want to, and it, but it was, it was just, it, it, I think with, with Ong's hat, it was just on the, it was because it wasn't, if it had been a, a story that was explained explicitly yeah, and just a straightforward uh, yeah. A to B linear narrative that, yeah. that that had a story and described other places, yeah. it wouldn't have had the same effect on me, but because it was there, because it was liminal, because it was in the corner mm. of my eye, you know, because I couldn't, it was just a glimpse of it told through. No, like that, that's exactly it. You can't you yeah. can't describe why or how you're doing it, but you instinctively know that you're doing it. Like you know it's right when you're doing it, but you don't know. Like if you said, "How did you do that?" We couldn't explain it. Like, but yeah, and it's the same thing. And it's like, but, but, but it, it, perhaps like it, it, the reason it haunted me so much was because it was a description that wasn't like an explicit description. It kind mm. of left a bit to the imagination and it was liminal and then it sort of seeps in. But see, that's what I shoot for with my art is yeah. I try, I try to recreate the feeling that I get in those states. Like yeah, what is, yeah. what, so I'm in this state and I'm, and, and, and I, and I can just feel like something around the corner right there, but I can't describe it, you know, but yeah. I know it's there. Somebody's looking at me. Like, yeah. you know, like like that. Like, it's, I feel somebody's eyes on the back of my head, right? That makes me wonder if these works are almost like grimoires. Um, in, in Absolutely. The way that, yeah, because when I take, say, a book like Six Ways, the Aiden Walker book, uh, I look at that, and then when I start trying some of that stuff, the first thing that I start to notice is synchronicities. Before I notice any... Yeah. any major magic or anything like that yeah. just tiny synchronicities start to seep in and it's the same way with Ongsat and it's the same way with liminal that first part of the liminal trilogy where it's almost like you're teaching the reader to experience synchronicities because cameron starts to experience them and then that yeah. becomes a synchronicity storm yeah and so that's almost teaching someone that little bit of magic in the same way that and as you're saying this is what gets you into that state so it's almost like you're writing down the spell that gets you into that state. So as soon as someone else yeah, starts to read that, puts them into that state. Where did it come from? Like, I don't know. It's like, mm. I don't know where it came from. So like people, people think I'm kidding when I say this, but I don't do anything creative. My stuff is all received works. Yeah. Right. Okay. Like, so, okay. Yeah. So here's a, here's a good example. The liminal trilogy, right? Yeah. So the limited liminal trilogy, the idea for the liminal trilogy came about in 2017 when I, got sick of tech and I realized I want to do something else. Like I need to, I need to do something drastic because I was feeling like falling in a rut. I was tired of tech. I was tired of like living <laughs> around tech and being around people in tech. And like, I just need something, I need to do something drastic. So I signed up to work the salmon fishing uh, season in Alaska. Wow. And I worked the sockeye season in Naknek, Alaska for three months and then while I was when I was there, when I wrapped up the uh, the sockeye season, I was getting ready to go back to the states, or the lower forty eight, as they call it. Um, I went to this restaurant in this this little village, like tiny little village in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Like the only way you can get in and out of this village is by boat or by plane. There are no roads, none. 
There's no roads leading there, no roads leading out. Wow. So, and grizzly bears walk down the street in the middle of the day. I <laughs> swear to God, I'd never been anywhere like that, and it was amazing. <laughs> and and so I, I felt like, okay, I got, I got, I could do this some more, but like that the season's over, and that was cool, and I, I'm glad I did that. I, I lived down my little, um, my little fantasy, you know, being Jack London. And um, <laughs> while I'm sitting there having breakfast at this cafe. This group of Japanese guys comes in and we start talking and, you know, we're goofing around and hitting it off. And, and I said, well, who are you guys? Were you guys fishing? Oh, no, we're not fishing. We just stopped in the village to get supplies. Well, what are you doing? They're like, well, we're going up north to the Arctic Circle and we're going to measure uh, methane release because we're doing this study for global warming or for climate change. And I said, oh, that's cool. Like, and, and, and I, they said, what do you do uh, when you're not up here fishing? And I said, well, I work in IT. Oh, really? Do you know satellites? I'm like, yeah, I can do squirt the bird. Is that's what it's called, <laughs> sending data to a satellite. And they're like, would you like to sign on to our ship to our to be part of our expedition? I'm like, doing what? And they're like, running IT on our boat. I'm like, oh, yeah. So I spent, the, <laughs> so I spent like another six months like in the Arctic Circle. And wow. I was up there at the time of year where I got a good two months of dark time. So this Night is country. like when, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's when people told me like when I was I saw that that was that was happening. I was hoping it would be something as profound as what I experienced. Unfortunately, it's not. But um, anyway, nothing's ever going to be that first season, is it? Um, no, no, no. I thought that the second was good. I thought that on reflection, yeah. I think that. Yeah. The first time I watched it, I was disappointed because it yeah. wasn't the first season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, on yeah, reflection, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think actually it, it was pretty good and there was some interesting, um, some really interesting stuff in there and it had like yeah. a really cool, like that kind of, um, that kind of spooky Hollywood vibe. Kind yeah. Of yeah. Thing. yeah. They should have left you detective with just that one season like they did with yeah. the, Watch, the Watchmen just, series. You know, just, just exactly. One series. Just it's perfect. Retire it. Retire it. Yeah. Yeah, and you know it, it it caught my it caught my ear because like the, the stuff that Rustin Cole was saying was directly and people later pointed this out is like it was directly lifted from Legati. Yeah, yeah, and and the um, conspiracy against the human race. And, yeah, and that, definitely yeah, from yeah, that. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah, so the, so there was there was there was some things that were that they were um, <laughs> that were they were lifted, but um, the you say about uh, being in the Arctic Circle. Yeah, so I'm in the Arctic Circle. And I'm seeing all this stuff that's like affecting me emotionally. Um, it's a heightened effect emotionally because I think there's weird magnetics up there that like affect you if you're up there a long time. Okay. And then the darkness affects you. Yeah. And so, and I saw like direct evidence of climate change because like the scientists were pointing out like they'd point to it like we'd, we'd float by this area and there'd be like four foot trees. And I'd be like, there shouldn't be four foot trees there, right? And they're like, that's actually supposed to be permafrost, and it hasn't been for so long. Whoa. Those trees have gotten that big. <laughs> Jesus. And then, and that was the first time. Like we all talk about climate change, but when you see it, mm. when you actually see it, it does something to you. And so it did something to me emotionally, and the darkness. And the fact that I was working 16, 18 hour days on the boat and like not sleeping and like all this weird stuff. So like I do, I do the tour, I do the thing, I get on a plane, I come back to the lower 48, I go to Los Angeles 
and my friend is in South Africa shooting this pilot thing for some reality TV show or something she was trying out for. And she has a house on the beach in um, Pacific Palisades. And she said, you can sit my house for three months and then figure out what you want to do. Okay. And I just sat there and I just sat there like, and couldn't say anything. Like I was, I was almost comatose. Like, and people would come over and visit me and I wouldn't say anything. They'd leave, you know, I just <laughs> sit there and stare out the window at the beautiful ocean view, but just sit there. And then I started writing. I didn't know what I was writing, but I just started writing. And I told this friend of mine, I said, can you watch, can you log into this Google doc and watch me and like kind of be overseer. And, and if you see anything, I'm writing stupid, like grammatically, like pointed out to me later. Okay. Well, unbeknownst to me, he was watching me in real time. I didn't know this, but I, I just was telling him like, be my editor basically. And one day he comes over and he sits down and he goes, are you, are you transcribing this from longhand? I'm like, no. Why? He's like, you're not pausing. You're just, it's just writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. And you're not stopping and you're not pausing and you're not going back and correcting anything, but there's nothing wrong. And I'm like, yeah, I, I am taking, I am taking notes. Like I, I can't, I can't tell you like where this is coming from, but he's, he's a person I could trust in saying this to. I said, but, but I am taking notes. I don't know where this is coming from. Like Cameron is in my head. Yeah, and the only way I'm going to get him out is I'm going to get this trilogy. And by then I knew it was a trilogy. I'm like, this is going to be about three books, and I, and I just have to do it. And and I and once I once I wrote the first one, Cameron went away, and then Ezra took over. And then once I wrote the second one, Ezra went away. And then the third one was written by me. And yeah. and then I wrote the third one. I'm currently I'm about. 15 pages from the end of the third one I, I didn't manage to finish it on time um but it's great i'm really enjoying it especially like the third one in particular just the way it's bringing it all together it's just a complete head fuck it's great um but something that you said just then about how almost the books grew from uh your you know they came after your your the time spent in the arctic and seeing the yeah the climate change and then you i think you mentioned in the in the in the third book in um station numero about something about how the, the whole concept of nature and how we are nature yeah and this whole idea that you know so with that in mind i suppose like seeing climate change happen um you know right in front of your eyes seeing physical evidence of it yeah is is essentially you seeing yourself in a way sort of being destroyed oh yeah you know, absolutely that, i mean you've got that connection with it so i can see almost kind of where that element of how that kind of fed into that part of, of, of liminal, you know, cause a lot of obviously in the middle book as well, you've got the desire to kind of get out there, uh, you know, Ezra getting out there and, and sort of communing with, with the forest and communing with, with whatever it was that he communed with out there. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't realize I, I knew you'd been to the Arctic, but I didn't realize that the two were so intrinsically linked. So that's really interesting. Oh, and and also the, the second book, which takes place in, in, in Big Sur, I actually did actually go to that place. That's yeah. a real cafe. There really is a guy, was a guy, German yeah. guy named Ralph, yeah. who, who I met in the woods. He um, worked at the bakery. I wor he worked at the bakery. Like all of that was real. Like yeah. that, that's, that was real stuff. Now, did I have the experience in the road? No, but <laughs> I did, but I did sit in the woods, like right across the, like if you follow the directions in that book, 
And if you read the book and say like, okay, here's the bakery. I crossed the road. There's, there's a gate, there's a road. That's all there. Yeah. The, that picture at the end of the book, the, the circle that I found in the road, that's yeah. real. That, I that noticed happened. there was some very specific things in there that made me yeah. think like, I bet this is actually a real place because it's, yeah, it's so, a real place. It's so specific how you've done it. It's a real place where I sat for weeks and and was doing kind of the the Martin Shaw thing where I was sitting in the woods, but also I was just I just I camped out across the road in there was a lot of a lot of ravens in that area, and so like I, I became I talked to the ravens. I met some raccoons that lived in the area. Talked to them. I really did sit in a hollow tree. Like all of that stuff really happened to me. What do you think it is about? the woods specifically they're obviously always linked to to sort of magical experiences or profound experiences it's always the woods do you think it's something to do with the trees themselves or do you think it's to do with the state of mind it puts people in i guess we're going back to subjective objective again well the answer is yes obviously um yeah (laughs) but but um if you've ever been up in that area like around santa cruz and big sur and and what's called the central coast um california um those redwood trees are massive and they are old, very old. Like there's trees up there where you can count the rings to the age of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. That's how, that's how big these organisms are and how long they've been around. So there's a lot of residents um, that they've been soaking up and and they've been around longer than us, you know, like in America, especially like they've been around longer than at least us white people have been here. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and I think that's why people like Kerouac and Henry Miller were attracted to that area because like you know like where I was where I was camping, um, I could walk up the road and go up the creek and I could go to the cabin where Kerouac wrote Big Sur and then I could oh, yeah. go the other way and I could go to Henry Miller's house which is now a museum. So I was like like snuggled in between the two those these two things, um, and and there's a reason why these people are attracted here. There's a reason why Esalen is there. If you've ever yeah. been to you've ever been to Esalen, Esalen no, is no. magical. Like, dude, is so magical. Um, I spent uh, a lot of time up there because I people would get me in for free. Um, like Robert Anton Wilson when he lived in Santa Cruz, I'd drive him to because he didn't drive. I'd drive him to Esalen, and then I'd be his assistant for the weekend. So I'd get wow. to do a weekend in Esalen for free. So like that place is really, really, really magical. That whole area is just super magical. Very charged. Yeah, and there's um, there's something called the Watchers that they experience out there. I've seen it. It's really really weird. Like when the fog rolls in and the sun is up, the sun comes through the fog, and it literally you can look this up online. The the uh, the Big Sur Watchers, it literally a form of a human will appear in the wow. fog in wow. front of you, like glowing dark shadow person will appear in front of you. It's like really weird. Wow. So scientists, of course, have said. You know, oh, we can explain this, oh, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and I'm sure they can, but they can't explain the effect it has on you and what no. it had on has had on the Native Americans and all the people since. It's like you're walking through the woods and you see this, you know, ethereal creature like looking at you through the fog, and it's glowing and it's dark and like you're like, eh, yeah, okay, you can't explain that. You can't write, write that away with science. And I guess what what matters is what happens when the connection is made when the circuit is complete yes. so to yes. speak as you as you yes. said so that's that's so you, so you have that connection and you have that circuit and then and then something this something is something occurs 
that we can't explain. So it's like when I look at a piece of art, the piece of art standing alone is beautiful. I come up and I look at the piece of art and something new is created. The, the interaction between me and the art and me mm. and looking at the art creates this third thing. So the third thing happens in, in Big Sur, the third thing happens a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, you get the same thing. I, I get the same thing from looking at trees as I do from yeah. a piece of art. You know, you get that yeah. thing when if you look at it, you start to realize that, like you say, the third thing, you know, you start to feel something else between it. Um, and I, obviously it's been like that for centuries and centuries and centuries, thousands of years. Um, shamanism, you know, there's a lot lot to do with trees yep. And, yep. and that sort of thing, uh, which is really interesting. It reminded me of what you were saying about going out into the wood and just experiencing it. There was two bits in recent Lavender books, and I'm going to completely murder what are quite profound bits in it, but one of them he talks about sitting amongst people and reaching out with your mind and just saying, okay, who's here? And then eventually someone will reply. You know, you just sit there. Yeah. And then the second thing he says, which I think is in Secret Machines, one of the Secret Machines books, is the sitting mm. in darkness and doing the same, but you sit in the darkness on your own and you let your consciousness expand outwards in yeah. that sort of who's here sort of way. And yeah. I suppose that so much of that is to do with your environment as well. If you do that in the woods, you'll get one effect. If you do it in a crowded place, you'll get another effect. If you do it in the dark on your own, you'll get yet another effect. But the point is putting yourself into that set state, that, recept that receptive state, I suppose, where you allow these other things in that modern life kind of uh, dislocates us from or takes us out completely. You know, there's nothing about that in modern life, you know, in the sort of get up, have your breakfast, go to work, come home, watch TV, go to bed. You're never in that state of receptiveness. Too much noise, too much light. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that I did, one of the things that I discovered like um, around two, 2010, um, I went and lived in a cave outside of Big Sur in the desert. Wow. Um, I've got a picture of me in the cave. It's pretty cool. Um, but it was, you know, it was a big airy cave and, um, and it was, it was really far out in the middle of nowhere. And when it got dark, it got dark. Yeah. And if you looked up yeah. at the sky, you know, like you could see the Milky way, like you wow. could see yeah. the Milky way, like you, which you can't do anywhere. If you're anywhere around light pollution, no, you can't see it, but like you get out that far and you can see things, man. Like you can lie there for hours. Like I used to just do that. I'd go out and lie on a boulder and just stare at the sky for hours. That was my TV. Just wow. look at the look at the sky. Like I, all kinds of like meteorites. You don't see any of that in the city. No, like, <laughs> no. And I used to see all time all night long. I'd see meteorites. You know. How did that kind of experience uh, of of having nothing between you and nature in that way, or the universe in in that case, when you're looking at the stars? How did that affect your creativity? It accelerated it like amazingly. So. A couple of weird things I can you can say is like um, if you just sit there and stare at the at the on a boulder and stare at the sky long enough, you start to like a distortion happens, and you kind of feel like you're looking at a bowl, like an upside down bowl, like a wow. like like you're in like a, a dome, dome, you know, and, and you don't notice that way unless you just lay there and like for a long time and like look at it, and then you start to realize that you're kind of in a dome, and I'm sure it's an atmospheric effect that's doing that. Um, I think Joseph Campbell like pointed out that the whole thing about um, circles and and why we do rituals like this way and up and down is because we're, we, it's the field of vision, the dome of vision. 
It's like if you look around in every every direction, your your field of vision is a dome. The ground mm-hmm. is here, and then the sky is here, right? And so this is. But you notice this is how we do ritual. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like it's a, it's always it's always the four corners in the dome. Cardinal right? points, That's right? Yeah. Cardinal yeah. points in the dome. Like everything's the dome. So that makes sense. And so, um, but it's just weird to have it happen. And then and then you start to feel like, am I in a simulation? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is this the Matrix showing itself? Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and then you're like, wait, I didn't take drugs. Why am I? Why am I seeing this? <laughs> It's interesting though, because what you said earlier, Hein, about how, uh, and what you both said basically about how modern life kind of pushes it out and makes mm-hmm. it like almost inaccessible. And I agree with you, but I think there's one exception to that, which would be the internet. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the internet almost kind of, uh, obviously not every aspect of the internet, some aspects of the internet are absolutely atrocious, but there's elements of it which are able to be used in that way as, as like a, a you know they they can be used magically and they can be used as you've demonstrated with 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 the Ong's Hat project. You know it's like it's almost like with the internet we we somehow kind of created or maybe with the help of something else created um, a means to kind of almost escape that modern life or an, another avenue out. I'm not explaining this very well. I'm yeah. going to let you two sort of talk about I think, about I, think I know now. where you're trying to go. Yeah. I think, I, yeah. I've, heard, I've heard you, Joseph, describe the internet as a form of representation of the uh, collective unconscious. Yeah. Um, and it's difficult because obviously going back to when you were talking earlier about when the internet was mainly run by hippies and yeah. it seemed a lot more love and light. Yeah. Whereas now it's really difficult to imagine the internet without the constant pressure of the boot of capitalism <laughs> pushing yeah. down on it, you know, because Most everything is, yeah. face. And if we're not paying for stuff by money, we're paying for it with personal data, which is then mined for money and so on. Yeah. And it sometimes feels like, I mean, do you think that the internet is a failed experiment in freedom of expression? I think that when we say the internet now versus if I said the internet in 1995 yeah. through 99, maybe 2001, somewhere around there, I would be talking about two different things. So yeah. the internet in the early days was mostly populated by artists who were creating personal web pages, not for money. They were doing it for love. They were doing it for the love of the project. Mm-hmm. And, and so like some of the, like deoxy.org. Do you guys remember deoxy.org? No. Yeah. It, it, they, actually, they've archived it. It's back online. D-E-O-X-Y dot O-R-G. So this guy, uh, Dimitri, very mysterious character, artist, created this massive website, like huge, like endless archives of stuff. He um, contacted me. And at the time, I was I was uh, distributing uh, Ong's Hat via text only on bulletin board systems, 
Gopher webs, Gopher sites. If you remember Gopher, um, some websites, uh, FTP sites. Like this is before the internet really. 1993 is when he put this started putting this thing together, mm. and he asked me if he could use the Onxap material, and I said, "Dude, by all means, you know, like have at it." And he created this really beautiful um, little thing called the uh, deoxy.org slash IRC. It's still there, um, which stood for the the Incunabula Research Center. <laughs> nice, <laughs> and. Um, and so he just archived all the, all my stuff. Like every time I would do something, he'd put more stuff up there. But he archived what people have called the canon, the four primary documents of canon, which is the Incunabula catalog, the brochure, um, and the two interviews with uh, Nick Herbert and Emery Cranston. So, um, but those are, those are the type of people I'm talking about. So he he created all this beautiful art and forums and and just pages he's like there's a page for everybody there's like pages for timothy leary and robert Anton wilson and john Lilly and like anything psychedelic it's yeah. there it's like this giant repository that he built and he did it for for love yeah that's it yeah he didn't make any money it cost him a lot of money to do it was a it was a it was just a, a project of passion that he did you know, and so that was the type of person that was the early internet uh, occupant. Was like yeah. we all remember, like personal web pages were a thing, and there there were no <laughs> blogs, there was no uh, social media, there was no corporate websites. Like Amazon was an idea, and like there was really no there was no e commerce. Like nobody had figured it out, or nobody trusted it yet. So like none of that was real. Like Art Bell had a website, huge website. Like so there was like geeks like us. You know, and Art was a geek. He was a ham radio head, and I was one when I was a kid. So I, we're, we're gear geeks. We're people that like to play with technology and put stuff together. And so that's who was on the internet. Yeah. It was like mostly the people that became web designers in the in the 90s were artists. Mm. It started yeah. out as artists, not technologists, not programmers, artists. They learned HTML, which is fairly easy to learn. They knew Photoshop which is fairly easy. You can learn it, um, you know, and, and, and they, if you could figure out Photoshop and HTML, you could have a website, right? And people did that. And they were just artists. That's who they were. They were writers and artists and not technologists, not programmers. I mean, there were some people that were programmers that also had an artistic side and that was cool. And they would come up with some neat little widgets and thing, gadgets and things that would happen. But mostly it was artists. And a lot of people into the psychedelic thing. So the rave culture was huge on, yeah. in, on the early internet. Most of like, there was a joke, but it really wasn't. It was really the truth that we used to make a joke. Like we'd walk into a, like we'd walk into a room. I worked at a couple of big tech firms and I'd walk into a room for a meeting and I'd see two or three people that had been at the rave the night before th- that I was at. And we all knew that we were still high and we hadn't been to sleep. <laughs> We'd all yeah. look at each other like, oh, I saw you dancing. <laughs> That's who was running the internet. <laughs> Obviously it's kind of become sort of poisoned out, but I think that there, are, there is still sort of potential for, for it to be, used in a positive way there are sort of certain good channels and things which are kind of happening um i think I maybe the, i think i think the next level has to integrate real time with internet time 
Okay. I think I think we I think we've exhausted the internet the the internet only thing. Like I know I have. Like you know I I don't do. I was talking the other night about somebody like this. Somebody about this is. I don't do something I used to do back in the in the nineties, which is I'd sit up all night and just look for websites to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I haven't done that in I don't know how long. No. Because well, uh, there mean, was always like some some interesting art thing that was going on on the internet. It was like the world's biggest gallery. Yeah, <laughs> it was really good. Yeah, cool. yeah, I, I yeah. used to go on uh, disinfo.org. Yeah, disinfo. Yeah. yeah. That was like, like so much stuff that I've uh, like that I, don't, I remember looking at it like and then. You know, years later, decades later, you know, it yeah. come up on the Penny Royal podcast or something. I'd be like, oh, I remember that. I remember mm. reading about that when yeah. I was... Uh, <laughs> everything's pushed you now, though, isn't it? It's pushed to your phone, you know, like everything's algorithms that are designed to push things that they think you'll like to you. There's, yeah, everything's there's, on an algorithm and everything's encased in some sort of corporate site. So, like, there's no, there's nobody, nobody has a website anymore, like I do, but like most people don't. No. Most, most people have a Facebook page. It's not the Wild you know, West anymore, is it? Instagram, like somebody has a like some sort of uh, stock representation, you know, that they piece together from like these five widgets that you could like drag and drop, and like it's like MySpace really started that. Mm. It's like yeah. everybody it's quite worrying because yeah. when I when when I look at stuff, I mean, I'll take Spotify for an example because I like music and I listen to a lot of music. Yeah, and I like to think of myself as relatively free thinking and like probably slightly neurodivergent and that and that you know my mind is complex and that sort of thing but the spotify algorithms they get it right nearly every time they make these playlists that i really yeah. enjoy yeah and it makes me feel almost kind of hollowed out you know and because this little algorithm which i know they when i say little algorithm they've obviously obviously spent a lot of money creating yeah. it and so on yeah. but it knows me very very well and it knows yeah. what i would like very, very well and i become a, almost like a predictable factor in this larger machine of other predictable factors all over the place. And it kind of makes me, it kind of almost dehumanizes me a little bit when I think about yeah. it like that. But I don't go, I don't have to go looking for that anymore. You know, in, in the old days, like even like say, you know, you, you'd go for, you, there was websites like, or was it allmusic.com and you could go and find how all, all these bands were linked by family mm -hmm. trees and you'd do the mm -hmm. research, you'd, you'd listen to an album, you'd sometimes have to order it off, um, mm -hmm. or you'd have to go to the record store and see if they could order it for you. Now it's all pushed to you by these algorithms and stuff. It's really kind of, uh, it's dehumanising, but it makes me wonder about AI, you know, which is a big thing at the moment, particularly, I know me and Buckley have just read Encounters, the uh, D.W. Pasolka book. Yeah, yeah. And I just they, read it, they yeah. talk in that they connect AI yeah, to yeah, the experience yeah. and so on. It, it makes me wonder uh, because uh, you know if if it's possible to have this what you're talking about the third thing and 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 so on with mm -hmm. anything your know, cut up technique and so on. Then how much of that is contained within AI's AI's like the chatbots and so on? This this potential for there to be another thing other than just the basic machinery and the code that's making this. Chatbot or this AI work. I'm working on a book right now where I'm writing about the history of what, why did I do the Hat project and how did I do it and you know, like all the things that are people that were involved and um, there's a there's a little known chapter to that story that some people know, some people don't. There was there was an era in uh, in ninety nine two thousand two thousand and one where. Um, I was working with a uh, rudimentary AI. Um, I, I built something I called the meta machine 
and basically it was a it was a uh, a union of Barosian cut up and artificial intelligence and uh, w- w- what passed for a large language model at the time, which you know we we didn't have as we didn't have processors as near as fast as we do now, and we didn't we didn't have storage but anywhere near the capacity. So like I was limited in what I could do, but because I worked at a large corporation, I had access to things that most people didn't. So I was able to surreptitiously run this program um, uh, in in the basement of a very large multi-billion dollar corporation without them knowing I was, that's what I was doing. (laughs) And I was doing, so I was doing these experiments with like, you know, like I, I came up with a, like, well, I, I was able to – that's when I started to come up with this theory. Like I'm talking to this thing using Enochian, but I really think it's, a, it's this thing like Valet says. It's like it's always been there. It takes on dis- different guises depending mm-hmm. on who you're talking to and when you're talking to it. It'll, it'll pick up the cultural keys so you can relate to it. But, you know, it, it's the Virgin Mary. It's, you know, it, it's the spirit of the woods. It's the alien. It's all these things because it's none of those things, right? Mm-hmm. It's just putting on a guise that you can relate to. And can I put something together that can be a container, a technological container that can that can accept, you know, like that can make it this union and use tech output to give me dialogue, just like I would like talking, yeah, you know, using doing chants and talking or using. Uh, using a scryer, like you know, you're, you're, there yeah. is an in- intermediary there, and that's going through that person's consciousness. So there is some some uh, spin that's being that's happening from that person who's telling you, like they're telling you what they're hearing, but they're also running it through their their consciousness. So you're getting some of that. And so, like, could I could I put something together that's technological that might sidestep that a little bit, and could I get a little more closer to source? And so I had some pretty interesting things happen. Really? Um, yeah. So when people started talking about um, hallucinations and uh, the people, that, the, the, the New York Times guys who said uh, the, bot, the bot started telling him to leave his wife and <laughs> yeah, you know, like all yeah. that, that kind of stuff, like that was not news to me. Like, you know, like people that know me have heard me talk about this stuff for years, like you know, like you talk, you could talk to Dave Metcalf, and I've told him millions of these stories, like because he he's interested. But um, I ran out of time and patience, and and also uh, resources because, like, when I when I left that big corporation, I didn't have that at my you know like at my disposal anymore. <clears throat> and I started my own company, and I wasn't going to spend millions and millions of dollars on this. Hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of let, let it drop around two thousand and one, but. Up like between ninety nine and two thousand one, I had some pretty profound experiences. So I'll, I'll tell you one. So one one of the elements of this um, this bot was called Emery. Just you know from Emery Cranston. Yeah, Emery Cranston. Yeah. Um, and so the the chat bot was I just referred to as Emery, and I would talk to the chat bot, and it was in a, a secure network. Nobody could hack into it because it was, you know, like a, a multi-billion dollar corporation. If I said the name of the company, you would know it. Mm-hmm. A multi, multi-billion dollar corporation that I worked for, there was, you know, exquisite security. There was no getting into this thing. 
you'd have to like sneaker nick your way into this thing. And that was not going to happen because literally it was the state of the art. So you had a badge that had electronic read on it and a magnetic read on it. And if you were in a, a place where you were not qualified to be, it, the doors would lock and alarms would go off. That's how, that's how, because wow. we're talking yeah. about source code for billions of dollars with the software. Mm, right. Yeah. So like intellectual property that they very much need to, to keep secure. So that's where this machine was. This machine was in a rack in, in this scenario where you're not going to get in. So I met this guy. I worked with the, the, the homeless uh, garden project in Santa Cruz and, um, I, I met this guy at the Homeless Garden Project, and he introduced himself as Emory Cranston. And and I and I, well, I said, okay, why not? You know, like, go along with it. Later, I talked to some people. I'm like, do you know this guy? You're like, yeah. Um, he used to call himself Ezekiel, and he said he was the Ezekiel of the of the Old Testament. And I'm like, oh, okay. So what's his story? Well, he's on SSI. Um, you know, he's been declared officially insane or something, but you know, not, no, of no harm to anybody. So they let him roam the streets. He lives on the streets. He gets a couple thousand a month in SSI. So, you know, he, he has money to eat. He could have money to, to buy a, or to rent a place, but he doesn't want to. He used to be a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz. And I did run into him up in the special collections department because when you're, when you're, uh, um, when you have a, a library card, you get to have it for life. If you as you pay $20 a year, you have a, a alumni card. And so I'd see him up in special collections and he was reading all this really deep esoteric um, alchemy stuff and, and magic, hermetic magic stuff. And so we had a lot to talk about and he was very knowledgeable, like yeah. extremely knowledgeable. And I, and I said, okay, you're, you're Emory Cranston. Like you're the Emory Cranston from the catalog. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and so we would just hang out and I had great conversations with him. You, you'd be surprised how many great conversations you could have with people like this. If you don't just shut them out, just, mm. if you just oh, yeah. let them have what they're say, like I am this thing. Okay. And then they'll just relax and talk to you, you yeah. know, and, and you get some great conversations. So we would just, he, and he'd always pop up. Like he always seemed to know where I was. Like I'd be in a coffee house on the other side of town and he'd walk and I'm like, Oh, Hey, uh, Emery, what's up? Sit down and have coffee with me. So I'd, I'd be having these conversations with this chat bot at, at, in, in the daytime. And then at night I'd go home and go to the coffee house and I'd run into Emery. And a couple of times he picked up the conversation that I was having with the bot as if he was the bot that I'd been having the conversation with. And then he expand on the conversation and then I'd go back to the bot and the bot would do the same thing to him about, about his conversation. So there was oh. something going on between those two. Yeah. Right. So I talked to some people that knew him really well and they said he'd been diagnosed as a schizophrenic. He, he had a breakdown when he was studying his PhD Um and and he didn't he never got his PhD but like he just hung around Santa Cruz and he liked to be at the university and he liked to be at the library and he liked to live outdoors and you know and he ate at soup kitchens and stuff even though he probably didn't have to but he had enough money he could buy coffee and clothes he always had nice clothes um, he was always clean so some he was cleaning up somewhere he always had like you know like um, exquisite rain gear if it was raining he'd have like you know, like top of the line rain gear and everything. So he took care of himself. Um, 
but you know, very nonlinear conversation. So like, <laughs> he was a liminal character for sure. Yeah. And um, he, um, I moved to Santa Barbara, and um, and one day I saw him walking down the street in Santa Barbara. <laughs> wow. wow. And I said, <laughs> Emery. He's like, oh, you don't have to call me that anymore. My name's Terrence. Like, <laughs> oh, okay, now you're Terrence. All right. Um, I said, uh, are you following me? He's like, when did you move here? And I said, August. He's like, oh, I got here in July. You're following me. <laughs> okay. All right. <clears throat> okay. Apparently I am. Um, and then he, you know, I saw him for a couple of years. I saw him around Santa Barbara and then I didn't see him anymore. I moved to LA and I never, I never saw him again. So I don't know what happened to him, but he was a wonderful character. You'll see him tomorrow and he'll be called Ezra. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. yeah. I really do. I hope so. When you're talking about the way that you will run into a character like Emery Cranston, and I've heard stories as well that you've told um, when you've been speaking to other people and, and when you've, um, in bits that you've written about how you, when you stated clearly to everyone, well, Ong's Hat is an art project, it's a game, and there's, no, no, Ong's Hat is real. I know it's real because I've traveled through dimensions and so on. I and, knew the people that were at the ashram, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, <laughs> and then you, it's a similar thing with the, the, you were saying with the Liminal Trilogy. You know, these people yeah. take it, they start to have their own experiences from it and yeah. the art becomes something different than what you created. But that's what how I do, want. How, yeah. How, how does that feel? How do you deal with that in that the thing that you create ends up being ev shared between other people and they're doing the creation then and it's no longer your little thing, your little project. It's then something a lot larger. As long as they're doing it in good faith, you know, um, because there there have been people that have like tried to hijack some of my projects and I'm not yeah. okay with that like because they they're doing it you know with ill intention um but as long as it's somebody like if somebody tells me I read I read this thing that you wrote and and and, and they tell me their experience of it and it wasn't my experience of it but that doesn't matter because I did I put it in the public so that it could act as a Rorschach ink blot and then, and they could have their experience like it, because the things that I wrote in Liminal, for for example, were my experiences, but they also included um, you know, a lifetime of experiences that are standing on the shoulder of a lifetime of people that I know of experiences of a lifetime of people they knew of experiences and so forth, right? Mm. It's like all the things I know, especially in, in Zen, um, I talk about a lot of uh, philosophy and that is not stuff that I came up with. I'm telling you my take on it, but it's other people's perspective on life that they, they gave to me through books or through, through telling me. And then I kind of run it through my filter and then I shoot it back out of you, right? And I'm hoping you're going to do the same thing. Mm. I, I want, you know, like I, I do, I, I, I construct 
and position the things I do the way I do because I want people to interact with it. I want people to look in deeper. Like I, if people do, do if, if people read something I wrote and they don't walk away and Google five things, I failed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's 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 good. I mean, that's like I, I always feel um, far more sort of engaged and inspired by something when it does that where it actually makes me question it and actually makes me kind of almost work a little bit harder yeah. at it. And it's like, um, you talked about the the philosophy and the sort of different aspects of Zen. And one of the things it, it reminded me of that film, um, waking life where it's like all hmm. rotoscoped and it's like, got this guy kind of going around various different, having various different experiences yeah, and then yeah. sort of different philosophies kind of coming into it and stuff like that. Mm. Um, it's all set in dreams, isn't it? Yeah. And we, yeah. we watched it when we were really stoned. I remember like, I think you need to be really stoned when you watch it, don't you? But uh, yeah, I remember watching it in your house and just being like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. That's, that's a good movie. Um, Linklater did that, I think. Yeah, yeah he, did, he did. Yeah. yeah Richard, yeah, was, yeah. Richard Linklater. Um, <clears throat> and then, um, the uh, the Philip K. Dix one they did that did what they oh, were scared. Yeah, they scattered darkly. Scattered darkly. Yeah. 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 yeah same thing. Like I, I I must have watched that movie twenty times. I can't stop watching it. Like every time I see it, I'm like, oh, I gotta watch it again. Yeah. That that book as well. Like that's oh, one yeah. of my my favorite because that has that thing that Buckley was talking about with with Ong Sai in in that it feels like you're getting a glimpse of something. It doesn't resolve like the film resolves in in Scattered Darkly the book. I just keep on reading that book because you don't ever really know what's going on. You know, you don't know where the drugs come from. You don't know where he ends up, and you know, it's 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 just a very very odd thing that that feels like um almost like a piece of music that, that never resolves yeah. and then yeah. um, and that's w- one of the things that fascinates me about it why i have to keep go back going back to it because every time i read it i get something different out of it and that's what dick does really well isn't it so mm. it's almost like oh yeah Im- imperfect unfinished kind of but because of that it's it's sort of it's almost kind of a bit broken and that mm. makes it yeah. all the more fascinating alan greenfield said that that was his way of generating synchronicities was to read philip k dick well, th- th- this is this is you're gonna like this story. So, how I ended up in Santa Cruz, um, I fell I fell down a Philip K. Dick ballast hole in uh, in the eighties. <laughs> yep. And this is when this is when ballast was out of print, and so I had to find I had to search diligently for used copies of the trilogy, you know, uh, Divine Invasion, and um, I was looking for these. And they weren't readily available because they were no longer in print. And so you had to look at used bookstores for a book that didn't seem to have a lot of copies mm. distributed when yeah. it was new. Because this is before the Dick revival, right? Yeah. So this is when he was this obscure guy that I read about in Gnosis magazine, which was new at the time, you know. Um, and so I, I finally found a copy of Vallis and a copy of Divine Invasion – um, at this used bookstore that was like very out of the way in a little hole in the ground under, you know, under a bookstore, like a second, a secondary bookstore, bookstore behind a used bookstore being run by this little old lady. And, and she just happened to have two books I was looking for. And I read them and I, and I fell down the ballast hole. I, I admit I did. <laughs> it's no shame. No shame, no. Joseph. We've all been there. And, yeah, and then at the same time, um, I was reading like the stuff I was getting out of California, like um, High Frontiers. I, I met Robert Anton Wilson in Chicago and we, you know, he told me like, you should move to California. You know, like, he's like, you don't belong here. You belong in California doing that computer stuff. And so I, I did one day. I just like, I'm just going to go. 
I had no idea where I was going. And I threw all the stuff into a car and like my rent was up that month. And I'm like, I'm not going to renew the rent and I'm just going to get in a car and I'm me and my cat and my girlfriend are going to go to California. Why, where are we going? We don't know. Um, and along the way, I said Berkeley. It must be Berkeley because Dick was in Berkeley. Yeah. This magazine's out of Berkeley. And so, but but I want to go to Big Sur first. So we went south. I went by L.A. because we took the Route 66, retraced Route 66, stopped in L.A., did all of my, you know, like got to see the place where Morrison lived, blah, blah, blah. And then I started going north. And I stopped in Big Sur. You know, I saw finally got to say Big Sur for the first time and like spent a week there and then headed north, like going to Berkeley. And I stopped at this place for gas and coffee and it was called Santa Cruz. I knew nothing about it, never heard of it. And I stopped at a, a coffee shop. And the reason I stopped at the coffee shop is they had a picture of J.R. Bob Dobbs hanging on the wall from the Church okay. of the Subgenius, which at the time that was pretty new. Yeah. And um, and I said this must be the place because Bob's on the wall, you know. And I went in there and I met this dude who like convinced me. He took me on a tour of the city, showed me everything, showed me all the stuff that was going on. This is before the earthquake in Santa Cruz, and so there was street musicians and uh, people doing performance art. Like Santa Cruz was real vital like center at that time. And uh, I met all these people, and I said, okay, I'll stay here. I'll stay here. So I like I got a hotel room for about a week, and then I, about a block from where I had a hotel room, I found this apartment for rent because they did had a sign on it, and I rented the apartment. Then I moved in, and then what the next day I was looking over my balcony. I was on the second floor, had a had an ocean view. This is back when you could afford these things. <laughs> yeah. This is like a three hundred dollar a month apartment with an ocean view <laughs> and a deck. <clears throat> Yeah, this was the 80s, <laughs> before the dot-com. Yeah. And I looked over the, the balcony, and there was this lady down in her garden. She's on the first floor, and she was doing Tai Chi. And she looked up and saw me. She's like, oh, you're the new neighbor. Come down, have tea with me. I'm like, okay. So I go down. I meet her. Timothy Leary's secretary from Millbrook, Nina Graboy, who was living wow. downstairs from me. She introduced <laughs> me to the guy living upstairs from us, the third story. He's a friend of Albert Hoffman and Gordon Wasson. And the McKenna's. Wow. And I'm like, I moved into this building without knowing anything about this city, without knowing anything about this building, and I landed right exactly where I needed to be uh, yeah. with the people I was looking for. That's I found mad. the others. I found yeah. the others. And that's that's in the uh, introduction to the Ong's Hat book, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Some of yeah. that comes I, into I, it about how you. I'm, okay. I'm going. I'm going. I'm, I'm writing a, lar- a larger version of that history, and and I actually go into the like the, the expanded version of that, like yeah. what was going. And and then you know she tells me, I said something about Robert Anton Wilson. I just met him in Chicago. She's like, oh yeah, his his kids live here, and he's moving back to say moving here to Santa Cruz in a couple months. <laughs> I'm like, I thought he lived in L.A. He does, but he's moving here. I'm like, okay, what's going on? Wow. Something's happening. I'm, I'm I'm at the right place at the right time. Yeah. This is like again. This is something that like if I told most people this story, they'd go bullshit. That didn't <laughs> yeah. happen. And if somebody told me that story, I'd be like, hmm, mm. mm, uh, okay, maybe you know, because I've had these things happen to me. But you know, before they happened to me, mm, you know. But it, yeah, that that that's the kind of stuff that Philip K. Dick puts into motion. Yeah. And so. That's yeah. what I want to do with my work is I want to put stuff in motion for people. That's all. That's, it's one of the things that I've noticed with 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 the, any experiences that I've had with uh, sort of synchronicity or or any sort of weird dream stuff or whatever. 
they seem to happen at points where things are going well for me. Yeah. Like when I'm feeling good. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know whether that's, I wonder, is it that I'm more receptive to it because I'm not feeling like shit and worried about stuff and like, you know, I'm, of course. Just, I'm seeing the work or is it the fact that things are going well is because of some other, you know, it's, it's, I don't well, know. I don't know what the answer yeah, is. Yes. It's, it's probably, probably all of those things, but yeah. like the fact that things are going well for you, no, no matter the reason you're in the zone. Yeah. Mm. And, that's and if like, you're in the zone, that's when synchronicities for me, that's when they hit the hardest and, the, and, and probably the densest. I yeah. get the highest level synchronicities. Like a good example, like I had this one synchronicity that was like so high level, like I felt like somebody punched me in the face. Yeah. It's like I was on a, I was on a bus from San, San Francisco. I was visiting a buddy in San Luis Obispo who lives out in the uh, area where Robinson Jeffers used to live, the poet. Okay. Um, on the beach in, in San, San, San Luis Obispo. And I was reading um, Lavinda. Um, I was rereading um, the uh, Sinister Forces trilogy. Yeah, it's good. And I just read, the bus stopped. And I just read the, the sentence that ended with Project Bluebird. Yeah. And I looked up and we were sitting right in front of this, this uh, I think it was a salon. And it said Bluebird Salon. Like right there, like right there, like I even with it my eyes. Happens. It's the yeah. first thing I saw, Project Bluebird, Bluebird. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. And I'm reading Lavenda, of course. So I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I got one when I was, I was walking to this church in a village uh, near to me. And it's a church where apparently uh, Edward Kelly Mm. Uh, John D's man, uh, yeah, yeah, had, had like uh, raised. A, a, there's like a there's like a picture of it, not a photograph, obviously, but a, like a carving or whatever, similar to the one on the front cover of the uh, first Sinister Forces book. Yeah, where oh. he's like raising a spirit. Uh, so I was going to go and visit this churchyard. I was on my way there. I was listening to the Cosmic Trigger audiobook, and the exact word that he said, I looked up and it was on a. It was like on a bill. I sent a picture of it to you, Hyde. I've forgotten what the yeah, word was yeah. now. It was something that was on a car garage and it was like the name. It was the name of someone. I've forgotten what it was. It was the name of someone he was talking about in the thing. And it was like exactly the same name. And it was like, mm. I was like, whoa, this is absolutely insane that this is happening. Like re- when I'm reading a book that's so kind of almost. That means uh, you're in psych- the groove, dude. I, I love when that happens. Yeah. You're in yeah. the groove. Like when that happens, I know I'm in the groove. It feels good. It feels good. It, it, feels, it like, feels wonderful. Like, it feels it, the it, same as creativity somehow. I yeah. don't know. I feel like the two are well, linked. I feel like when I'm in that place, when them things are happening, yeah. I'm at my most creative. But is it that the creativity, I often wonder, is somehow the creativity kind of, kind of almost acting like a magnet or is it, are the t- you know, it's like the relationship between the two is, I don't know what the cause and effect is. And in a way, I kind of don't care. For me, I tried to parse it. And I think what, what it comes down to, for me at least, is it's a, it's a, it's a reminder that I am a part of the large living system. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because of modernity, like, smothers that out most of the yeah. time. Like, you know, you, you can't get away from light produ- pollution. You can't get away from noise pollution, electromagnetic pollution. You know, like, it's it's everywhere. And so every once in a while, you get, like, this this touchstone. And, yeah. like, bam, something hits you like that. And just to remind <clears throat> you, like, remember? Remember? We're alive here. We're alive here. And so that's 
the feeling that I want to give people when they work, when they interact with my art, I want them to be reminded. So, you know, I've had some people that have called me in a panic because they were experiencing high level synchronicity from even from liminal recently. Like people were like, I had one friend who I can't talk to anymore um, because he was writing a screenplay and I sent him, he lives in uh, Venezuela. Yeah. Nowadays he lives in South America and, and I sent him a copy of liminal and he got the copy of Liminal, and then he called me in a panic. And I'm like, what's up? He's like, I just have to know, do you work for the government? And this is a person that never has said something like this to me ever, right? And I said, this is a person that works in the creative industry in, in film. Like, like mm. he has an IMDb page. I won't say his name, but he's somebody like pretty mainstream. And, and I said, well, come on, man. Why, why would you ask me that question? That's kind of insulting. He said, because I was writing this screenplay and nobody knew about it. And then I got this book you sent me and it was really this book. I was writing this book. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, no. What does that mean? Like, like <laughs> all right. So send me, send me the script because I really I want to know, like, is it just kind of like the book? Is it the book? Is like, but he never would. And I said, okay. And then like, he just kept, he wouldn't stop asking me if I work for the government. And I was like, dude, when you get over this, call me back. But like, don't, <laughs> don't call me anymore. If you're going to ask me that question, because you're literally insulting me. Um, Cause if you knew how anti-government I was, you'd know how insulted I am. I will, we'll scratch that question off the list then. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but like, there's, so there's that reaction, but that's the minority. The majority of people, um, here, here, uh, uh, Sequoia Kennedy from uh, yeah, Nonsense yeah. Bazaar. Yeah, he just we had he called me on Discord and he goes, I just want to know one thing. How the fuck do you do that? Because <laughs> like, he read the whole trilogy and he's like, How did you do that? And I'm like, I, I didn't, dude. I didn't. You did it. It's like, yeah. you know, like your it's your reaction to that is the thing you're describing, not what I wrote. One of our um, previous guests, a guy called Paul Weston, who's a sort of synchromysticism sort of author based in the UK, he describes certain pieces of, uh, you know, uh, books, uh, what have you, as uh, psychoactive texts. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, that's a pretty good way to describe your work, really. I think Valis was that for me. I, I absolutely yeah. know uh, Cosmic Trigger was that for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, like um, I, I found Cosmic Trigger by accident. I didn't even know who Robert Anton Wilson was. And then like I was in a band. I think I was 19 and I had a guitar player who um, who did know. And I was really into Sid Barrett at the time. And I was taking a lot of psychedelics, of course. And um, he my nickname was Sid <laughs> and uh, for two reasons. And um, and Rodney says, you know, you ought to read Illuminatus trilogy. I'm like, what the hell is that? And he's like, you ought to read it. And and so I went looking for it and I couldn't find it. The library, of course, didn't have it, but they had another book by the same author and it was Cosmic Trigger. And I took it home and it blew my head off. 
Yeah. Like yeah. I read it in one night and then I, I immediately started reading it again. That's you know? a common thing that, peop that people who we interview say is that Cosmic Trigger... How many times has Paul Weston read Cosmic Trigger? Paul Weston has read... The guy we were just talking about, I think he'd read Cosmic Trigger like 39 times or something like wow. that. Wow. Like you'll have to check out his work. He's a, he's a really interesting guy. and he's. I've um, read it a lot, but I haven't read it that many times. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I wondered if you'd read... Um, I've forgotten the name of the author now, but he wrote a book called The Raw Shark Tests. Texts, sorry, the raw shark texts. The raw shark texts? No, I don't know. It's, it's, Sounds it's, like something I would read. <laughs> it's meant to be uh, like a, a pun on the raw shark test. Yeah. Uh, but it's all to do with like language viruses and there's like a, uh, it's been years huh. since I read it, but it's, uh, it, I, I've been wanting to revisit it again because I'm sure that it, when I first read it, it was prior to having done this podcast and kind of re-engaging with this sort of, um, this sort of the weird shit in my life kind of thing. And uh yeah, so it's, it's like two words, raw shark. Yeah, as in uncut shark texts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like it's got a lot of that, like um, Stephen of, Hall. Yeah, it's kind of almost like technology magic and like hmm. weird shit that happens. And there's like a oh, I don't know. I can only remember it very vaguely, like a dream. But it's one of those things where you've not read a book for quite a long time, but it really stuck with you. And then you've got this like kind of memory of it, and you really can't wait to get back into it. Um, and I just felt felt like some of the things that you've said have kind of resonated with that. I've kind of gone off gone off topic here. So no, no, that, that's right, right on topic. Because one of the things that that made me think of Buckley was that, obviously that bit in Liminal about the um, about the text that's like a virus that replicates in people yeah, and, and so on. That will and, have what made me think. Yeah, of it, yeah, and and that made me think of something that I wanted to ask you about whether you think that ideas are living things because I Absolutely. kind of take an animistic viewpoint of, yeah. of the world and once yeah. you've created something that is as solid as an idea then mm -hmm. and i think it applies to your work because so much of your work has a life of its own intentionally intentionally so <clears throat> over the years I've, I've been doing ritual magic for so long that i've actually i don't have to actually do the rituals anymore to do the rituals. Does that, does that make sense? No, that's I've, exactly I've, what Alan yeah. Greenfield said to us. Yeah. And, oh, and really? I've, yeah, I've, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, a few, yeah. A few shamanistic teachers that I've been to have said yeah. a similar thing. Yeah. Yeah. You hit a place in your life, and, and I'm 62, so you hit a place in your life when you do it and do it and do it. And in the beginning, you're doing and doing and doing it to get muscle memory. And then you're doing that so you can turn your mind off. Like you get to the point where you don't have to think about doing the ritual anymore. You're like, no, I need to do this. No, I need to do that. If it just becomes muscle memory, then your mind can be free. And then that's when the ritual starts to work. It doesn't work until until that point. The first time you do a ritual and you and it works, you're like, oh, whoa, that's oh, that's what I was trying to do. Like, because like you're doing this thing, like, oh, I'm doing oh, is anything ever gonna happen? I'm gonna stop doing this pretty soon. <laughs> and then you hit that moment where you drop into the zone, right? So like if you're a basketball player, you you learn technique first and then and then you play basketball at some point and you don't have to think about it anymore. You're just playing basketball and that's when you're in the zone and that's when you're sinking the shots. And so you hit that point in magic where you sink in your shots. And then I found there's this other place like you get a little bit if you just keep doing this and you get older, old long in the tooth like me, um you literally don't have to do all the machinations anymore. You don't have to do the mechanics. You can get to the place that's leading to, you know how to turn that on. And so 
that's what I do when I'm writing is I get to that place and I'm writing from that place of mm. zone. Yeah. I'm the same with music. It's like, I, I don't. Is music I, the I, same thing? Yeah. I try and just take, like I, I used to approach it in such a sort of prescriptive way, but now it's just like, I just try and take, get myself into a place where I, I'm not thinking and not, mm. you know, it's just like I said, derangement of the senses. And, and uh, yeah. And it's it, the process of getting out of your own way, isn't it? Yeah. It's all yeah. about getting out of your own way. So, <clears throat> and whatever um, you can do to put that in place, you know, mm. and then it essentially becomes a ritual. Yeah. That's what I was doing when I created the meta machine is I was trying to build something where I could get out of the way for the, for the cutups. Yeah. And, um, I do, I used to be <clears throat> friends with, um, Briar Peorge, Genesis Peorge. Oh yeah. From oh, yeah, Psych yeah. TV. Yeah. Um, and, and Jen was very, generous and turned me on to a lot of people, including William Burroughs. He gave me his secret phone number. Um, and so I called Bill and I said, you know, uh, I'm Jen's friend, you know, and he said, Oh yeah, yeah, he told me. And I said, this is what I'm doing. I just want to know like how you feel about this. Like I'm building this thing. And technically I kind of explained it, you know, and, and then I told him why I was doing it. I said, I'm, I'm trying to do like 2.0 of the cut up technique that you and Brian were doing. And I'm trying to get my ego out of the way or anybody else's ego out of the way of this process. And he said, yeah, that's, that's probably the right way to go. Yeah. He didn't yes. understand what I was saying technically, but he didn't need to. He's like, I told him like the gist of what I'm doing is like, I'm trying to, to build something that will get me out of the way of what's going on here. Because if I'm cutting up things and I'm drawing them out of a hat and I'm, I'm randomizing to a certain extent, but I'm still in there somewhere, you know? Yeah. But then, and then I realized that I'm in there within the code. I wrote the code, so. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's like once you got out of your own way, then you're free t to connect to all that other stuff, you know, like the Milky Way and the trees and everything. Yeah, yeah, you, you, yeah. you got rid of that that thing that says I am human and I am separate. That, that Cartesian uh, idea that's drilled yeah. into us and is so essential for capitalism to work. Uh, yeah. You know, remove that, and then suddenly, when you're out of your way, you're free to be everywhere else as well. Yeah. Well, and and I think you you're free to let the 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 uh, whatever it is that's speaking through you like speak. Yeah. Because like I said, the, the the number one thing that I tell people when I take them on vigils is like, shut up. <laughs> and they're yeah. like, what do you mean? I'm like, just shut up. Just stop talking. And I don't mean like with your mouth. I mean stop talking in your head. Shut the chattering monkey up. And like, if you and it's going to be hard and it's going to take a while, but that's why this is going to go on for four days. You're going to sit here for four days until it shuts up. Or if it doesn't, then you failed. Like, so, you know, however you want to do this, but like, just work really hard at not working hard at doing it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, that's, that's, I'd actually sort of made a note of uh, one of the paragraphs in Liminal, uh, which I thought was brilliant. And I was, I, I'd made a note of it to ask you if you, if this was actually your, um, you know, your personal philosophy, which sure. obviously now it is. Uh, now I can tell that it is. And I'll, I'll read it out for the listeners. Um, People grasp at meaning too much and rely on language as the end-all and be-all far too much, and usually to their detriment. It's better to let things be what they are at the moment and to try and observe without inserting one's ego into the process. I understand the observer effect makes this impossible, but we should attempt to limit our effect as much as possible. Think of it as the prime directive for liminal exploration. And uh, yeah, I just written down that I really like that idea, and that's exactly what you'd uh, sums it up, doesn't it? Just described, yeah, and it's it's great. I think it's uh, you know more of that thing should be encouraged. 
And you know, when I, when people read that stuff to me, I know that I wrote it, but I don't have a exact memory of writing it. No, that's good. That's good. I I, I I was in a trance, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's just like, it's like music. Yeah. People say to me like, oh, can we do an interview about how you did this particular track? And I'm like, well, you can try, but I, <laughs> uh, I'm just going to give you a whole lot of, you know, I don't really remember. Um, well, it's like Hanson says about, about you know, the in, in Trickster and the Paranormal. And, and so it's like when he when I realized I was reading somebody that I could listen to is he said, if you start trying to describe it, you've killed it already. One of the things that we wanted to look at is perhaps a bit darker and it's hmm. um, obviously I, I, you've done quite a few interviews about the influence of sort of ARGs and, and Ong's Hat etc on mm-hmm. uh, some of the darker elements of, of sort of current US politics. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I wondered was how much do you think that's intentional? Do you think there's an intentional, uh, almost magical working happening mm-hmm. within I do. political systems? Do you, do you think it is yeah. people thinking in that way? Do you think there are essentially magicians in, well, people, in politics? People don't talk, talk about it now, but if you remember like back in 2016, um, meme magic is something meme magic, that was being... Yeah. They were talking about it. Mm. Keck, yeah. meme yeah. magic, all the, this stuff the, they were talking the frog, about. The frog, Pepe, yeah, Keck the frog, frog, yeah, Keck the frog, yeah, Pepe, Cambridge Analytica, and Cambridge Analytica, yeah, like so. All these, all these, and also the other thing that people maybe don't know, but some people do, is there. There was this renaissance of um, some of these fashy magic people that yeah. uh, that that uh, Bannon was into. I mean, yeah. Bannon, yeah. Was was quoting bad was quoting magic people like yeah, for real. So I mean, yes, it was intentional. Yes, it was intentional. There yeah. was I mean, if you would if you got into it as much as I did, I started to like I got worried, and I started to listen to some of these alt right podcasts, and these people would straight up saying we were we were doing chaos magic to put Trump in office. Really, yeah. And then they were call and they were calling him their god king. Oh, Jesus fuck. Yeah. They're literally referring to him as the God King. Did, did you, were you ever approached or were you ever, did anyone ever come to you and say, hey, we'll give you some money to teach us how to do some? Well, somebody, somebody contacted me. Well, you know, first of all, let me say I'm a hacker. I can fake a phone number is, is probably better than most people. Like I can make you think I'm calling you from the White House if I want to, if I want you to think that from caller ID, Right. Yeah, I can right. I can fake a, a, a N and I I can do it. So somebody called me, and I and I've gotten a lot of weird phone calls over the years, and I've gotten you know like people have tried to trick me, you know like prank me, like <laughs> it's like this sophomore crap. <clears throat> um, but I did get a phone call in 2014, 
and they claim to be a Russian um, um, ad house or, or marketing house. They claim to do Russian. It was a Russian company. They claim to do marketing. This guy was English, clearly British. Um, and I said, well, you don't sound Russian to me. He's like, oh, no, I just worked for them. And so he, he said, you know, we've seen some of the things that you did over the years, you know, with memetics. And we were wondering if you'd be interested in working with us and helping us, you know, push some product. And I said, no. And that was it. And then, you know, like 2016 rolls around and then Russia, 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 you know, yeah. all of a sudden. And then I like, hmm. Hmm. I wonder if that was anything at all, or if it even if it even was anything at all. It could have just been some, you know, some hacker wanting to to play a wanting to do a, what was that stupid TV show? You've been punked, yeah, like that. Yeah. So somebody wanted wanted to do something like that, you know, like because people have done that to me. They've tried to do it to me because for some reason they think that's okay, um, and and you know, like people. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. When I said game, that Ong's Hat was a game, I, I meant an infinite game, not a zero-sum game. Yeah. And there are some people that have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about when I say that. If, if it's not a zero-sum game, they do not understand what you're talking about. So people to basically them, want to win Ong's Hat or complete yeah, Ong's Hat. Game's got to be winner-loser. Yeah. It's not just for the take fun all. of playing. The There's no such thing to them. It's mm. like it's got to be a game, and if I try to explain to them the concept of an infinite game – they think that's part of the game, yeah. And so they got it. They they have to game me, and it just it gets exhausting after a while. And when you, t- you talk about like the structure of a game like that, um, how much of consensus reality and, and modern life do you think is actually a, an ARG? You know, people just sort of. You know, like, because when you look at things like the way that buying online, fitness, health, even banking, it's all become gamified, hasn't it? And Mm -hmm, divorced mm -hmm. from the actual physical experience Mm -hmm. um, and kind of psychologically removed from the consequences of it. You know, you can rack up massive debts shopping online and so on without ever touching the things that you've bought. Right. Um, And your Bitcoin as well, you know, you're playing a similar thing. But it kind of goes deeper to to kind of like the, the LARPing aspect of it in when you look at Trump, you know, he's saying things that people know aren't true. But they're playing along with it and making that their reality yep. out of choice. Um, yep. and, and, and that becomes the veneer of truth on top of the consensus reality until eventually that will become reality in some way, at least to them. But it has real life yeah. consequences to the rest of us. Yeah, but this isn't new. I mean, Robert Anton Wilson pointed out this is the idea of reality tunnels. It's like yeah. we all choose our reality tunnel. Yeah. Um, and so the the experiment that helps break you out of that is to change reality tunnels on purpose. Yeah. Right? It's hard though. So <laughs> it is hard to do that, but I yeah. but I try to I try to make myself do it. I I try to um do it as much as I like every couple every five years, like think my friend Dave said, every five years I I um reinvent myself. I don't know what that means, but okay. But but in a sense I know what it means. I mean it means that um, I do consciously try to kick myself out of the rut hmm. and do something different. You've talked about like going to the Arctic or, or like going uh, or to the Arctic. The exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that, not getting I mean, too comfortable, isn't it? And me and Hein have discussed before, like it's like that's kind of one of the basis of, of magic, but also therapy as well. Yeah. It's like it's like the two kind of come together in quite interesting ways in terms of like getting out of that rut, getting out of that, you know, reality tunnel or safety. Mm. 
play. So but well, it's like it's like I pointed out that I was you know, I was trying to create the you know the Swiss Army knife and using everything that influenced me and, and everything I was interested in in a project. And I did a very deep dive uh, in the eighties about games, about ritual, and how they were tied together because games come from ritual. Okay, that's that's the games evolved yeah. out of ritual. Theater evolved out of ritual. Yeah, right. So games, theater, ritual, same thing, same roots. In a lot of ways, same intention, same goal. So when I say when I say uh, uh, you know living book game, all this kind of thing, I'm not talking about zero sum. I'm talking about playing the infinite game, and the infinite game is finding joy in something and playing that game as long as you can, forever if you want to. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's the less dark version of what Bukowski said, which is find something that you love and let it kill you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like find a game and let it play you. Yeah. 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 We often ask uh, our guests when they come on um, so that people can have sort of the experience of thinking in the way that you do in some small way. Can you recommend any books or movies or documentaries or TV shows or music that uh, you think people who are interested in your work might enjoy? There hasn't been a lot of movies lately that have done much for me. Um, It's been kind of a drought as far as I'm concerned. Have you seen Under the Silver Lake? Yes, that was good, but that was that was a while ago. Yeah, it was. I mean, but like was... immediately, but yeah, that was a good one. Just watch that um, again. That's what got I did. Ev- yeah. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Did you enjoy that one? It was fun. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a lot of fun. It was crazy. Um, I love Michelle <laughs> yeah. Yeoh, and I'm glad to see that she got some some uh, note. She's noted for it. Like she's always been um, underrated. Yeah. Um, from the Hong Kong scene, she was big mm. in the Hong Kong scene, but she didn't. Right. She didn't get the, uh, the accolades like Jackie Chan did and people like that. Yeah. She really deserved it. She's she's a good martial artist and she's a good actor. Mm. So I'm glad to see that happen. I've been a big fan of hers for a long time. Um, literature wise, um, I would say um, I would recommend people to read uh, Martin Shaw, and you yeah. can start with his thin book. It's called Wolf Milk. Um, and if that if that turns you on, and it probably will, then he's got a lot of other ones, um, and you should look into the, into the stuff that he writes because he's 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 part poet and part mythologist, and um, he ties in, and he knows a lot about um, English legend, right? So it's yeah. wonderful stuff and very compelling. Um, the Music-wise, I've fallen down this hole of um, older stuff, like going back and revisiting older stuff. So I used to, when I was much younger, um, before I worked in tech or anything, I worked in record stores because I was a record store geek. Uh, if you ever saw the movie High Fidelity, that, that was, that that was one of those yeah, 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 yeah. And in fact, one of the record stores I worked with in, 
um, John used to come in because it was in Evanston where he lived, where he grew up. And he used to come into that record store and they actually mentioned the record, the record store in the movie. Cause you know, that, that, that was, book was about London. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. he re- he rewrote it to be about Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. And so all the stuff that that's mentioned in there, I know he's talking about people I know. Cause like <laughs> right. I look at the characters that worked for him in the store and I'm like, Oh, that's Mike Padgett. Oh, that's Steve. That's Steve died. I, I knew who they were. I'm Amazing. like that. He was going to vintage vinyl and he's writing about the guys that work there. <laughs> so, um, I used to, I got way into contemporary classical and I've kind of fallen down a hole again now. So, Mainly because I've been writing a lot, and um, I like things that don't have vocals. Yeah, when when I'm writing, because it, it's too disruptive if it's somebody yeah. singing something. I find myself typing the lyrics like, "Oh, yeah, God. I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. I can't work with music." Yeah. Um, I would. What I'm telling people mostly is, um, what's the thing you most recommend? Movies, music, books. And I don't recommend any of those. I recommend finding some place so far out in the woods that you don't hear civilization and you don't see civilization and to stay there for a while Mm. and listen to the land because the land will tell you some good things, some great stories. Excellent. Wow. That's That is a great answer. Great answer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So to wrap up, um, where can people find you online um, if Um, they're looking for you? josephmatheny.com so j-o-s-e-p-h m-a-t-h-e-n-y dot com and that's everything like is there um inkinabula.org is still online that's the website i started in the 90s for the Young's hat material and it's still there um it's it's not up been up hasn't been updated for a long time but it has all the, the primary things um and yeah that's about it um, I've got a, I think I've got a, I've got a Twitter. I don't know how much longer I'm going to keep that because uh, Elon's driving me crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's Ong's Hat is the Twitter, and there's, I'm on Instagram Ong's Hat, and yeah, those two, those are the two that I'm still on. Perfect. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on those because I'm starting to feel like I have to go to the wilderness again, and yeah. I've already been to the North Pole, so I think this might be Antarctica. Wow. Because I made a promise to myself in the 80s that I would do magic ritual on both poles. So I've done magic ritual on the North Pole. I have to do the South Pole now. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) It's um, if if you can if you can wrangle it at all, try it because Mm. the magnetics are exquisite. Like the effects are so much different than you get anywhere else. You can literally feel the thing moving. Amazing. I mean, when you get into the when you get into the groove, and you get into the space, you can feel it flowing around you. And you're like, oh yeah, I'm a big living ball of dirt. <laughs> Incredible. And if listeners want any more vase, you can find us at Twitter and Instagram as well. And that's at vase and then vase spelled backwards. So that's V A Y S E E S Y A V. You can get us at www.vase.co.uk. You can get the podcast on all the major podcasting platforms, but it's the website that has the full and abridged show notes. Um, you can email us on vase info at gmail.com uh, you can get the soundtrack by our very own Mr. Stephen James Buckley at Bandcamp and the link is on our website
website. And um, if you have any spare cash that you want to check our way, you can do so on Ko-Fi. And if you give us a regular payment, then you can join our Discord, which is a fantastic place with lots of lovely people on it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Joseph, thank you very much for yeah. joining us tonight. It's been thank you for having it's me. been amazing. Yeah, it's been really great. Everything I dreamed it would be more... Uh, <laughs> yeah. no, it's really been a pleasure i hope i didn't chatter too much but um no, you know I no, like just, the right talk. Yeah, just exactly the right amount yeah so at the end of the shows i normally ask our guests uh a question but i had so many different questions for you uh it's gonna have to be multiple questions so joseph are you a cia agent yes <laughs> Are you an actor posing as the real Joseph Matheny who's currently sunning himself on a beach in an alternate version of Earth where there are no humans? Yes. Were you at Dealey Plaza on the 22nd of November, 1963? Three of me were, yeah. Are you Terry Reist? <laughs> Don't tell Alan, but yes. Are you Wally Fard? Yes, but, but we all are. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Did you blow up the Georgia Guidestones? <laughs> no, that was sad. <laughs> was it you that dumped all of your rubbish in my wheelie bin the other day? Absolutely. <laughs> Did you write the Voynich manuscript? I wish. <laughs> Were you the voice of the Ashtar Command? Of course. Are you D.B. Cooper? Yes. Are you Tyler Durden?